Hello and welcome to the first episode of As Yet Unexplained Series 3. In this episode, we will be looking at the mysterious disappearance of three lighthouse keepers at Eileen Moore. It was on the 15th of December, 1900, when the steamer on a passage from Philadelphia to Leith noted in its ship's log that the light was not operational in poor weather conditions at the Flannan Isles Lighthouse near the highest point of Eileen Moor. When the ship had finally docked at its destination in Leith on the 18th of December, 1900, the sighting was passed on to the Northern Lighthouse Board. The relief vessel, Hesperus, was unfortunately unable to sail as planned on the 20th of December due to poor weather conditions. It did, however, reach the island at noon on the 26th of December. The lighthouse was manned by three men, James Ducar, Thomas Marshall and Donald MacArthur with a rotating fourth man spending time on shore. But at that present moment, it was completely void of all three individuals in a most unexplainable way. If you like what you hear, please consider liking, subscribing, or even writing a review on whatever platform you use to listen to podcasts. As always, we like to remind the listener that within this podcast are unsettling descriptions, and you should be cautious if you find such things distressing. Also, with every story there are victims, so please spare a thought for those who have suffered. On the 26th of December, 1900, a telegram was sent from Captain Harvey, master of the lighthouse tender Hesperus, to the Northern Lighthouse Board. The telegram was reporting an incident that had occurred at a Flannan Islands lighthouse. A dreadful accident has happened at Flannan's. The three keepers, Ducar, Marshall and the Occasional, have disappeared from the island fired a rocket, but as no response was made, managed to land Moore, who was sent up to the substation and found no keepers there. The clocks were stopped, and other signs indicated that the accident must have happened about a week ago. 
Poor fellows. They must have been blown over the cliffs or drowned trying to secure a crane or something like that. Night coming on. We could not wait to make further investigation, but we'll go off again to tomorrow morning to try and learn something as to their fate. I have left more, MacDonald and Boymaster and two seamen on the island to keep the light burning until you make other arrangements. Will not return to Oban until I hear from you. I have repeated this wire to Moorhead in case you are not at home. I will remain at the telegraph office tonight until it closes, if you wish to write me. There have been many theories over the years about what happened to the three keepers, ranging from the natural to the supernatural. One local legend at the time involved the three men being turned into large black birds. This idea was born from a report that Joseph Moore, the first man to have stepped on Eileen Moore after the incident, had seen three giant birds flying away from the lighthouse as he made his way onto the island. There is also the more common theory that one of the three men murdered the other two and threw himself off of the cliffs in an act of remorse. Donald MacArthur was said to have a foul temper, and so can be seen as the most likely culprit. Unfortunately, we have no way of knowing for sure what happened, or even on what specific day the events actually took place. All we can do is look back at the reports that were made by Moore and Moorhead, and indeed any clues that were found in the lighthouse itself. The first signs that something had occurred was actually noted by Roderick Mackenzie, a gamekeeper on Lewis, who was being paid £8 a year by the NLB to keep watch for any signals from the lighthouse. Mackenzie had noted that the light wasn't visible on the 7th of December, but as he was specifically tasked to watch for any signals as opposed to any lack of operation of the light itself, he didn't report anything to the NLB. The light was seen again on the 12th of December, but after that date it vanished once again. Days later, on the 15th of December, when Mackenzie failed to see the light once again, he assumed it was due to the appalling weather and the atmospheric conditions that they were experiencing. He had on previous occasions not seen the light for a few days at a time, and as long as he saw no signals and provided he saw the light again in the next couple of days, he thought nothing of it. As it drew closer to Christmas, Mackenzie enlisted the help of his sons, in the hope that with the three of them keeping watch, one of them would see the light or any signals from it. They finally saw the light on the 26th of December when it was lit by Joseph Moore. 
Joseph Moore was a keeper himself and was due to relieve one of the three men that were on Eileen Moore and resume his watch. As the Hesperus drew near the island, worry began to build in all aboard her when there was no light to be seen. Nor was the lighthouse's flag flying, as there was no response following a blast of the steam whistle. A rocket was fired from the tender to announce their arrival. This too remained unanswered. It was decided that Moore would make his way to the lighthouse to find out exactly what was going on. Gingerly, the men at the oars inched their way towards the 150-foot cliffs of Eileen Moore, as Moore stood in the bows of the Hesperus's longboat. It only took a minute or two for the boat to reach one of the two landing places that had been carved into the island's rock. As soon as it did, Moore scrambled ashore and started to make his way up to the lighthouse. When he reached the top of the steps, Moore saw the ruins of an ancient chapel and the lighthouse itself. But alas, no sign of life was to be seen. None of the keepers had come to meet him, despite the recent bad weather causing the relief to be delayed. As he made his way towards the lighthouse, Moore became increasingly anxious. He knew at least one of the keepers would have come to meet him to make sure that he had managed to get ashore safely. The only protection from the crashing waves on his way up the steps would have been the iron railing that had been cemented into place. It should be noted that the iron railings were intact and all the usual provision boxes on the east landing were fully stocked. He made his way closer to the lighthouse. Moore had no idea what he would find. As he reached the entrance gate, he found it closed. Passing through the gate, he made his way to the entrance door that led to the kitchen and storeroom. He found that door to be closed along with the door inside that. However, the kitchen door itself was wide open. As he entered the kitchen, he looked for anything that might help him find out where his fellow keepers were. Upon checking the fireplace, he noted that the fire had not been lit for some days. He proceeded to check every room in succession. All of the beds were empty and left as the keepers would have left them in the morning. In a letter to the NLB, Moore wrote, I did not take time to search further. Something serious had occurred. I darted out and made for the landing. When I reached there, I informed Mr. McCormack that the place was deserted. He, with some of the men, came up a second time as to make sure. But unfortunately, the first impression was only too true. Mr. McCormack and myself proceeded to the light room where everything was in proper order. The lamp was cleaned, the fountain full, blinds on the windows, etc. 
we left and proceeded to board the steamer. On arrival, Captain Harvey ordered me back again to the island, accompanied with Mr. MacDonald, boymaster, A. Campbell and A. Lamont, who were to do duty with me till timely aid should arrive. We went ashore and proceeded up to the light room, and lighted the light in the proper time that night and every night since. The three men that disappeared were amongst the best lighthousemen employed by the Northern Lighthouse Board. The principal keeper was James Ducar, a 43-year-old father of four. Ducar had been selected to run the Flannan Light while the lighthouse was still under construction and had already spent 14 months on Eileen Moore, becoming familiar with the conditions the island weathered. Thomas Marshall, a 28-year-old unmarried man, was the second assistant keeper, alongside occasional keeper Donald MacArthur, a 40-year-old married man from Brestcleet. MacArthur, an old soldier, was standing in for the more fortunate William Ross, the first assistant keeper, who was on extended sick leave. The keepers needed to be very efficient at their jobs, as the lighthouse was frequently hit with appalling weather and rough seas. Something that caused the construction of the lighthouse to take four years to complete, as opposed to the two years that had been planned, due to the difficulty of getting the building materials to the island itself. The men who ran the NLB did not, it seems, feel that the Flannans was actually dangerous, Yet there was some reason for believing that Ducar himself felt that Eileen Moore could well hold a higher risk than normal. Some nine decades later, Ducard's daughter, Anna, who had been eight years old when her father had disappeared, said that Ducar had needed to be convinced to accept the post. He said it was too dangerous and that he had a wife and four children depending on him but Mr. Moorhead persuaded him because he had such faith in him as a good and reliable keeper. Ducar and his family lived in Brestcleet, on the island of Lewis. The Flannan Isles and the lighthouse were around 15 miles to the west of the family home. Miss Ducar clearly remembers the day that her father said goodbye to them for the last time. It was a lovely sunny day and my brother Arthur and I were playing in the high ward gardens. My father came out of the house and picked each of us up in his arms and gave us a kiss. Then he walked very quickly away. We ran after him shouting, Daddy, Daddy, and he stopped at the end of the road and waited for us, picked each of us up again and gave us another kiss. I always wondered if he had some kind of premonition that he would never see us again. Anna herself was always open to the many theories about the fates of his two companions, but seems to have believed that it was foul weather and high seas that had taken the three men. Joseph Moore states in his letter that the condition of the East Landing was in good condition, However, the next day, on Eileen Moore, when Moore and some of the other men were doing a more thorough search of the island, 
they noticed that the condition of the west dock was not so well maintained. On the west side, it is somewhat different. We had an old box halfway up the railway for holding west landing mooring ropes and tackle, and it had gone. Some of the ropes, it appears, got washed out of it. They lie strewn on the rocks near the crane. The crane itself is safe. This information does seem to add more credence to the theory that the men were washed off of the cliffs. Anna Dukar remembered, six months before the incident, that the keepers were fined five shillings by the commissioners of the Northern Lighthouse Board because tackle at the West Landing had been damaged during an earlier storm. She believed that Thomas Marshall and her father went out not to save their mooring ropes, but to inspect what damage had been done by the bad weather and make the repairs necessary to avoid another fine. The exact timing that these men vanished is unknown, but Robert Moorhead, the investigator sent by the NLB, observed that the likely fate was on Saturday the 15th of December, in the early afternoon. He based this on the last work that had been done by the men. The trimming of the lamp and the filling of the oil fountains had all been completed. There were also mysterious logbook entries that were written in Thomas Marshall's hand that read, December 12, Gale, North by Northwest, Sea lashed to fury. Stormbound 9 p.m. Never seen such a storm. Everything shipshape. Dukar irritable. 12 p.m. Storm still raging. Wind steady. Cannot go out. Ship passed sounding foghorn. Could see lights of cabins. Dukar quiet. MacArthur crying. December 13. Storm continued through the night. Wind shifted west by north. Dukar quiet. MacArthur praying. 12 noon. Grey daylight. Me, Dukar, and MacArthur prayed. December 15th, storm ended. Sea calm. God is over all. It is said that these logs may not be what they seem. Many people have said over the years that due to these being official reports which would have been seen by the NLB, that Marshall would never have made notes about his superior being irritable. Nor were logbooks ever used to record the time at which men prayed. Indeed, it is hard to believe that Thomas would feel the need to mention that Dukar was quiet, as it is very often the case that many keepers are quiet, the job in itself being a very solitary one. These criticisms only succeed in adding even more curiosity to the mystery. 
Why would someone feel the need to fake logbooks and claim that Marshall had written them? It has also been claimed by some that the final meal of the three lighthouse keepers was found half-eaten and their beds were left unmade. But Moore's report backs the idea that these claims may have been fabricated for whatever reason. Amongst the unverifiable findings, there are in fact some things that are reported by all involved, which only add to the curious tale. The first being that despite the outdoor wear of Dukar and Marshall being missing, MacArthur's wearing coat had been left on its peg. Moore himself refers to this in his letter to the NLB, when he described the investigation that he and the other men that remained on Eileen Moore with him had made the day after they first arrived on the island. Now there is nothing to give up an indication that it was there the poor men lost their lives, only that Mr. Marshall had his sea boots on and oilskins. Also, Mr. Ducar had his sea boots on. He had no oilskin, only an old waterproof coat, and that is a way. Donald MacArthur has his wearing coat left behind him, which shows, as far as I know, that he went out in shirt sleeves. He never used any other coat on previous occasions, only the one I am referring to. It is incredibly unlikely that the weather was so bad that MacArthur had to leave and help his fellow keepers, and the fact that he would leave without his coat. This information is used by many to conclude that whatever occurred happened to Ducar and Marshall first, and that MacArthur followed to aid them. This adds more weight to the theory that Ducar had lost his temper and attacked Marshall, with MacArthur chasing them to try and separate the two. There is no way of proving that this is what happened to the three men, nor is there any way of disproving said theory. However, if MacArthur was leaving in such a hurry, why did Joseph Moore find the doors closed? Surely if he was chasing them, he wouldn't stop to close all the doors behind him. The Superstitions of Eileen Moore The island of Eileen Moore has long been a place surrounded by superstitions and legends. The chapel that lies in ruins on the island was once a Celtic chapel dedicated to St. Flannan, and the isle itself was for a long time seen as a very sacred place. John Mitchell, author of The Flying Saucer Vision, an abacus book published in 1974, remarked, Evidently, the islands were thought of as a kind of other world, haunted by supernatural creatures and the spirits of the dead. Probably the Flannan Islands were the islands of the dead, the place to which were ferried and never returned. This would explain their extreme holiness and their baleful character. It might also shed some light on what happened there early this century. 
Certainly the strangest and most unusual customs the Lewismen used was their use of alternative words to describe the physical features and conditions on the island. In fact, John Mitchell commented on this. Most extraordinary of all, the men had to speak in a different dialect to that which they used at home. Certain things were called by different names, as if the memory of the long-vanished language was being perpetuated. Words never used elsewhere were kept for the annual visit to the Flannan Islands. There were people who lived on the nearby larger island of Lewis that told tales of groups of little people who resided there, said to possess strange magical powers. The islanders travelling to Eileen Moor were said to use strange dialects to communicate with the beings that lived on the island and obeyed rules and laws whenever they would have dealings with them. It is important to stress that the Flannans were not the only islands in which the peculiar prohibitions were practised. Martin Martin, author of A Description of the Western Islands of Scotland, specifically mentions that St Kilda, 40 miles to the south, could never be called by its proper Irish name, Heart, but only the high country. It would therefore be hard to argue, from the antiquarian evidence at least, that Eileen Moore and its sisters were considered to be uniquely strange and forbidding by the Hebridean islands. In short, there is no reason to suppose that the prohibition on the use of certain Gaelic words in the Flannan Isles was connected to fairies or pygmies supposed to dwell there, or to the disappearance of Ducar, Marshall and MacArthur. Walter Aldebert Walter Aldebert, a principal keeper who worked on Eileen Moor during 1953 and 1957, was well aware of the history of the island and the disappearances of the three lighthousemen. He was convinced that giant waves could account for their fate. In fact, he would repeatedly take a camera out during appalling weather conditions to record the height of the largest waves striking the island. He exposed 30 reels of film in total. On one occasion, Aldebert crouched on the shoulder of the island around 200 feet above sea level and was nearly washed off of the cliff. A coil of rope laying on top and too solid to be shifted by the wind was washed off. The water lay a foot deep after the wave receded. My pictures do not show the highest waves, but they give some idea of their immensity. Perhaps these poor fellows, being fairly new to the Flannans, did not realize that extreme danger. It is possible that all three of the lighthouse men would have been washed off at the same time by the same wave. But if that is the case, then why would MacArthur brave such a ferocious storm without his oilskin coat? Aldebert himself had a theory that would answer some of these questions. While I was at Flannan, I would often sit there putting myself in the place of the principal. A storm is raging and Mr. Ducar is worried about his landing ropes. Nobody goes out of the lighthouse in bad weather, but if he loses his ropes, 
relief may be impossible, and he must save them if he can. After dinner, the wind starts to drop, leaving the cook to wash up. He and the other men put on their sea boots and coats and make their way to the west side, as there is no handrail by the railway. They come to the safety path which has a handrail, reaching the path which runs at right angles to the stairway and, seeing the path dry, they continue towards the crane where the box for storing the landing ropes is situated. Suddenly a wave much bigger than the previous one comes in and sweeps one of the men back into the sea. Aldbert hypothesized that the survivor, and there is no means of saying who it was, then ran back up to the lighthouse to summon the help of MacArthur. The cook, who had just sat down after clearing the dinner, knocks his chair from under him and rushes out, without his coat. Grabbing a heaving line, the two men make their way back to the west side, hoping to throw the line to their unfortunate comrade. Then comes another huge wave, sweeping both men into the sea. Once again, Aldebert's theory leaves the question of the closed doors. The rush to rescue their fellow keeper would not give them time to close the doors. The bodies of the three men were never found, and despite the best efforts of everyone involved, nothing has ever been found that would be able to say once and for all what happened to Ducat, Marshall and MacArthur. Links to our Facebook page and email address are in our bio, so feel free to get in touch, tell us how we are doing, and even suggest future episodes that we can cover. Next week will be the first episode in our two-part look at the legend of Spring Hill Jack. Thanks for listening. If you are listening to this message, then the subliminal frequency has successfully calibrated to your mind. Do not be alarmed. I am here to advise you to explore the Occultaria of Albion. The Occultaria of Albion is both a written series as well as a podcast. It explores various locations where paranormal and supernatural events have occurred. It is a broadcast on a forgotten frequency. Hauntings time slips, cryptids, cults, and more are investigated and examined. Enter a world designed by torch and moonlight. Go to occultariaofalbion.com 
or search Aquateria of Albion wherever you find your favourite podcasts. End transmission.